Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is where we talk with authors who write books about Hollywood, TV, movies, and nearly anything that catches our fancy. And tonight I have with me a very special guest. His name is Gary Vitaco Robles, and he has a new book out. It just came out, I believe, on April 19th. Correct. Um, yeah, it's I'm called... Press. Yes, indeed. It's called Icon, What Killed Marilyn Monroe, Volume 1. Now, this is this is not your first book on Marilyn Monroe, is it, Gary? No, I, I think this is now my um, fourth. This will be the fourth and fifth. Okay, so... Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the previous books dealt with um, her life and her career. Um, but now you are focusing on her death. And tell me a little bit now. Let me tell, ask me ask you a little bit about your uh, background, because you're approaching this from a unique perspective. Yes, I write from a mental health perspective. So I'm a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida. And for many years, I was also a national certified counselor. And when I was providing direct service, it was primarily to children and their families who had survived complex trauma. And that's sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. I started my career working with children in the foster care system. And as you know, Marilyn Monroe began her life in multiple placements because her her mom was unable to take care of her. But I've worked with um, adults who have experienced severe and persistent mental illness. And we know Marilyn's maternal family had intergenerational mental illness. So to really understand this woman, you have to understand her history of complex trauma and her history of intergenerational mental illness and how all those things played together in her life. And it's it's often overlooked by other biographers who don't write from that perspective. And you mentioned in, in the beginning chapters, you mentioned the other books that have dealt with, uh, let's say, conspiracy theories that range from, uh, I don't want to say crazy, but but you can uh, say that, <laughs> yeah, you can say outlandish. We'll use that very term, outlandish. outlandish. Uh, and tell me a little bit. And you, you actually, you, you run the schedule how these how these uh, conspiracy theories actually got started. Yeah, there there is a, like a genesis to this, and and you know what we see now in the media is like the culmination of all of this stuff. But if you really break it down as an investigative journalist needs to do and go back to the source, we can kind of identify three men who started all of this. And one of them was a gentleman by the name of Frank Capel. And he was what you would what you would probably consider now as kind of like a radicalized ultra conservative. And he published in 1964 a pamphlet. It was self-published propaganda. And it was called um, The Strange Death of Marilyn Monroe. And he was trying to advance a theory based upon Robert Kennedy being somehow involved in Marilyn's death. And he uh, also kind of attributes her death to folks who were um, uh, leftist leaning um, communists in the United States. And so if you look within the context of this, you know, he was going after Kennedy at the time when Robert Kennedy, who had been attorney general, was now 
um, running for senator of New York. And after the death of his brother and the ascent of his career, it was very clear that there would be a, possibly a Robert Kennedy in the White House. And so very interestingly, Frank Capel publishes several editions of his pamphlet in 64, 67, 68, and 69. So they're kind of congruent with the senatorial run and then into the presidential candidacy. And then it looks like he continued this even after Kennedy died, perhaps in a way uh, so that the man wouldn't be canonized. So that's really where it all begins. And then you see another gentleman by the name, I'm, I use the, the, the word gentleman loosely with these individuals, <laughs> but there was another uh, individual, Robert Slatzer, who then begins uh, his own uh, series in, of books into the 70s, which started with um, the, the life and curious death of Marilyn Monroe. And so with further research, uh, and some of that provided by um, a, a friend of mine, a researcher, uh, April Chambers, you can see documentation of contracts where Frank Capel and Robert Slatzer and a publisher by the name of Will Fowler uh, collaborated to write uh, the book that would then be credited to Robert Slatzer, but um, Fowler and um, Capel were writers of that book. So it's the same ideas that were now just propagated by these men who had their own agenda. Uh, Robert Slatzer, I might add, though, um, he tries to make himself credible by saying that he was married to Monroe, despite the fact that there's you know, no evidence to that and he's never been able to produce it. He says that it was conveniently um, burned in Mexico. But yet the media who gives him a platform and continues to do so um, never tells you his dubious uh, backstory that makes him, you know, far less credible. See, this is something which I always found, I always found interesting. And and some of the pe people you mentioned in your, in your opening chapters, uh, they've been guests on this show. Um, I believe one was Bombshell, which, which you mentioned in the beginning. Um, but the, uh, it, I always thought that, con that the door was left open for conspiracy theories when Thomas Noguchi who was the coroner on that? I mean, Marilyn was found, I believe, on August fifth, yes, nineteen sixty-two, and Noguchi was the was the coroner for a or assistant coroner, or whatever. He performed the autopsy yes. on on her, mm -hmm. and he wrote probable suicide, not not suicide, but probable. Did he leave the door open uh, for well, these conspiracies? I, I, I think that was kind of a. That was a, a decision that was made by several people. So uh, we had the 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 coroner medical examiner who was um, Theodore Curphy, and we had um, Noguchi, and they also brought in the suicide prevention team. And the suicide prevention team is also often miscredited as like, why were they brought in? They had never done this work before, but they had been assisting Los Angeles County coroner for quite some time on these cases because they're trying to establish, the coroner's trying to establish if a self-inflicted death is intentional or unintentional. And legally that's needed, that needs to be known because this, in, this in, impacts insurance payouts. 
So, you know, there's family members who might have an inclination of what really happened, who, who might not disclose that because they don't want the stigma of suicide or the financial uh, devastation that it could create. And so, so the coroner in these cases wanted some additional um, psychiatric and psychological information and the suicide prevention team, they were very innovative in, in the area of suicidology. And so they were consulted. And so, you know, in, in order to say, was it intentional? Was it, was it unintentional? There was a large amount of drugs that were in her system mm -hmm. and metabolized in her system. And so, you know, the estimate is that she took probably 47 approximately Nembatol and about 17 chloral hydrate. Those are two medications which are counterindicated to each other. So together, they create even more of a lethal issue. And so that large amount of medication is usually not something that's done by accident right? And the, the way the drug was absorbed, the pathologists were able to determine that it wasn't taken over a long period of time and built up in the bloodstream. It was taken in a very, very brief period of time. So, so I mean, they, 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 they um, qualified suicide. And they were actually, I think, very, very, um, created a lot of latitude by saying probable. It's, it's, I think it's, it's just um, a way to say that there might be some doubt, there might've been something unintentional about it, but it was probably not an accident. It was probably intentional based upon the fact that the door was locked. Um, she had um, used these medications which were prescribed for many years and understood their um, dangers. And, and a proper use of them. Um, and uh, she had not gone through her nightly ritual, which was to put her phones to bed and turn off her lights. Yeah. And so if she intended to um, go to sleep, the lights would have been off and she would have gone through her routine, but it looks like the routine wasn't carried through. So they didn't want to kind of unequivocally say it was definitely, um, suicide they said it was more than likely based upon the information that they had and i think well something that a lot of these uh conspiracy theorists ignore is that this wasn't the first time that she that she tried committing suicide i want yeah, to say if she you had... go back to the original newspapers you know i'd like to look at the original sources you know what was the context what was going on because over the years all of that gets replaced by uh, what we superimpose or what we hear many years later. And so the, the, the suicide prevention team, they did a very thorough investigation. So they, you know, Monroe spent most of her life, um, uh, her career life in New York from about 1950, late 1954 to 61. New York was her primary residence actually until she died, but her psychiatric providers were there. So they talked to Dr. Marianne Chris, who had seen her for many years, uh, Margaret Hohenberg, and the psychiatrist who treated her at Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic and Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, because she had two back-to-back -back psychiatric admissions in February and March of 1961. So they combed through and interviewed all of those individuals, in addition to Ralph Greenson, who uh, was treating her in Los Angeles the last year of her life and had done, done some other consults 
with her in Los Angeles when she went into crisis while on the film set. And so, oh, go on. Sorry, go ahead. So, you know, there, there, there was a lot of information there and, and it was disclosed, even newspaper articles that they were able to pinpoint four specific suicide attempts, three of them by um, overdosing and one of them by turning on the gas. And that one is very uh, nebulous to me because, you know, Arthur Miller in his uh, autobiography talked about his wife, Marilyn, and her overdose and the intentional one. And Norman Rostin, her dear friend, wrote about it. So we, we hear about these overdoses, but the turning on the gas in the apartment, there's really not a lot of um, explanation of that except from her psychiatric records, obviously. So we don't know if that was her apartment in New York, if that was earlier when she was renting apartments in Los Angeles, or was that something toward the end of her life when she had an apartment in LA before she bought her house in Brentwood. So, um, you know, past behavior, uh, you know, predicts future behavior. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, I remember reading about how she, when she was trying, otherwise trying to commit suicide, she would always call somebody and they would rescue her in time. Uh, is that that's a pattern that she kind of that that I read anyway that she was that she yeah was she undergoing. did she did she did reach out and there was always a rescue and so you know when when you when you look at um, Marilyn's unique constellation of of psychiatric issues, you know this was a woman who experienced complex trauma in her childhood, which had a big impact on her. And many children who um, survive that kind of trauma, when they become adults, um, they often have um, personality disorders, borderline personality disorder being a very common one um, for that um, history of uh, adverse childhood experiences. And so it's very common with that disorder that um, people um, are in crisis. They're in what we call a borderline crisis. And in that crisis, they want their emotional pain to end. And what they might do is um, act uh, on a suicidal impulse. Um, but yet, it's they just want to end the pain in the moment without really thinking of the permanency of it. Or they might also do it because it's a cry for help. They really don't know how to communicate this pain or what they need, and they lash out and punish themselves. And so, you know, it's hard to go back and posthumously diagnose someone. But when I read the letters that um, Dr. Greenson wrote to Marianne Chris, and you put together some of this information, that's kind of the uh, connect the dots in her life. It seems like if, if, if she didn't really meet all the full criteria for that diagnosis, she had many of its features. And certainly with her background, that would make sense. So there might be an element of this um, borderline crisis in the way that she would act out. Um, uh, you know, one of the, the, the um, features of borderline personality disorder is the fear of abandonment. And when you think someone's being abandoned, they're abandoning you, you know, you might do something to keep them connected to you and almost like create a, an opportunity for them to save you and rescue you so that they feel responsible for you now. And so it seems like some of that might have happened, but Marilyn had something else going on in, in combination with the borderline issues. Um, I spoke and, and consulted with her internist, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, before he died. And he confirmed to me 
that uh, he and Dr. Greenson clearly believed that she had what they call back then a manic depressive disorder, which we now call the bipolar spectrum. And that is um, characterized by a lot of impulsivity and poor judgment, mood fluctuations, manic phases, hypomanic phases where people are very impulsive, not thinking clearly, using poor judgment, and depressive symptoms, or a combination of both of those going on at the same time. So, you know, in the final analysis, the suicide prevention team said that, you know, Maryland's psychiatric disturbances included mood fluctuations and impulsivity. And certainly someone with bipolar disorder that's unmanaged is at high risk to take their lives when they're um, in a mixed episode. And that's when you have the depression going on with the mania or hypomania. So when someone's completely depressed, they might not have the energy to take action on their suicidal thoughts. But when they're in a mixed episode where there is a little mania or hypomania that creates the impulsivity, it might fuel the fire that allows them to actually take action on those suicidal impulses. So you really have a combination of two um, disorders likely going on that led to that situation where Monroe might have done these things, reached out for help, um, thought better of it. But in, the, in, in on her last evening, that didn't happen. But she did make a phone call. You know, she made a phone call to the answering service of her close friend and confidant, which maybe suggests that she was reaching out for help. He was at a Dodgers game, I believe, is what I read. That he oh, was. Would you repeat that? I'm sorry. I didn't he hear was you. at he was at a baseball, a Dodgers game, I believe, and he was unavailable or something like that. I read. Oh well, no. Well, actually, um, her her massage therapist Ralph Roberts, he um, he was out for the evening, and back then we didn't oh. have cell phones, and we didn't even have answering machines. So you forwarded your phone to an answering service. Um, I think we're kind of cohorts, so we might remember we might remember mm -hmm. that. And so, yeah, his phone was forwarded to an answering service where a lady just picked up the phone and and took a note that that there was a fuzzy voiced woman that didn't leave a name, and it was around eight thirty in the evening. Um, her 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 stepson though, Joe, Joe DiMaggio Jr., he was listening to a baseball game, and he called her earlier that evening, and they had about a fifteen minute conversation during which he didn't see any signs that she was despondent, which the psychiatrist saw um, prior to his phone call. See, that's what I was wondering. Because, and I loved how you mentioned that it was a different era back in 1962. We, we didn't know as much as we know now about bipolar disorder or, or what they used to call uh, depression. Um, manic manic depression or whatever it is whatever they used the term back in 1962 um you know and and it was kind of like it sounded like she was also doctor shopping going from one doctor to another yeah and th and that became a problem in her last years you know um when she was married to arthur miller she had consistent providers um but her her situation really worsened and um in the last two years of her life, especially beginning, I think, in around 1960, while she was making the Misfits, 
you know, she would, she would doctor shop. And so Dr. Engelberg worked in conjunction with the psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson. She actually started working with Greenson who recommended her to the, to the internist. And Greenson kind of kept his hands away from the, the medication most of the time. And it was Engelberg who was to prescribe. And they, they joined together in what I would call somewhat of a reckless plan and they knew that Marilyn doctor shop and they knew that what she could do was go from doctor to doctor to doctor and get whatever she wanted. And no one would have any control over what the meds were, what their combinations were. And so um, they, they didn't want to do that. And so there was a manuscript written by Dr. Greenson's daughter, Joan, which is now sealed until 2039. And she, uh, I had access to it. And she kind of outlines, you know, what this agreement was. And so they, the doctors decided rather than allow Marilyn to seek out all these other providers, they would just, Engelberg would just give her whatever she wanted. So it would be one doctor that she could be honest with and just ask for what she wanted. And then um, Greenson's job, a lot of her safety hinged on Greenson. Greenson would then go to the house and take a look at all of these medications and remove uh, certain amounts of certain bottles and some somehow kind of monitor this. But that, you know, that was very, very reckless. And, you know, you're providing like an arsenal of meds and then leaving it up to someone else to come in and remove it. You know, what if it wasn't all there? Um, and uh, if the doctors weren't communicating clearly, something clearly could go awry which, you know, ultimately, very, very likely happened. You know, it it amazes me some of the similarities I see with um, Marilyn, except for the, that this wasn't a suicide, Elvis Presley's death and Marilyn Monroe's death. You have a Dr. Feelgood, basically, in both situations. Elvis Presley had his Dr. Nick who would prescribe him anything he wanted. And Marilyn had a doctor, was it, was it a Engelberg. Engelberg who, you know, gave her anything she wanted. And Michael Jackson had a doctor. Like Michael Jackson. Well. Yeah, I know. So it. You know, it, it goes back many, many years and it's, and it has still going on. And what I think what you find now is that now doctors are found culpable in this. Whereas back then, you know, they, 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 they were not. Um, what's interesting about, Presley and Monroe also is that, you know, especially in Marilyn's time, there were no mood stabilizing drugs for her, you know, so they were, they were trying to do the best they can to medicate her symptoms with what was available. And unfortunately for uh, mood disorders, the best they can come up with was the, the first antidepressant drugs and, um, and sedative drugs. So neither one of them really worked and they were highly addictive. And Lithium. what we really know about bipolar disorder is if you give someone with bipolar disorder an antidepressant, it could trigger a manic episode. So, and if you give them a stimulant, that could trigger a manic episode. And, and, and in researching Marilyn's prescriptions, she was given an, a, a seven-week dosage of an amphetamine um, about a month before she died. And she was also um, prescribed anti- uh, uh, antidepressants, which could have triggered uh, some of the mania or hypomania that ultimately could have 
increased her risk for suicide. So, you know, they didn't have, you know, the best medications back then. And then you had these doc doctors who were very reckless. There's one prescription, you know, that you, when you read some of these biographies that I've, I've researched, you know, you hear the doctors talking about, well, they were trying to wean her off the barbiturates. I found a prescription dated July uh, 11th that had four medications on one prescription, two of them being secanol and tuanol, which are very heavy duty barbiturates. And she had already intentionally overdosed on those two medications about a year prior. So those doctors giving her this arsenal knew that she had had a recent um, serious overdose. And even in that overdose, I think she said, wrote in a letter in 1961, she, um, she had taken um, 10 of each of those. So that was Ten. 20 drugs, 20 units, right? And, uh -huh. in, and in the end, she took more like close to 67. Jesus, I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm like, you know, and it's amazing that she lived as long as she did with, with, you know, the people surrounding her. And of course, you know, the, uh, the movie studio just wanted her to make money, just make money, go out and we'll get, we'll make you feel however you need to feel to keep going. Judy Garland, you know, went through the same thing, but um, it also seems like, you know, you, you compare the, the Kennedy assassination with, with uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe's death with the conspiracy it seems to me that people don't want to hear a mundane death. You know, they don't want to hear that Elvis Presley died of a heart attack sitting in his bathroom or Marilyn Monroe just took a bunch of pills and, and killed herself. They want to have something gossipy. You know, it's almost human nature. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like, well, what what is it about this woman? Why is it that she's now being defined by her death? And why is this new narrative um, you know, uh, the the one that keeps being told, you know, so, you know, it, what does it do? It, it it actually becomes more of like entertainment than anything else, which, you know, that's, that's kind of distasteful to me, you know, because this is someone's life, you know, and, and the need to relive her life and reenact her, 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 her death in these books, you know, um, killing her off, like in all of these versions, but there's something primal about it, you know, she's, she's a desirable woman, um, death, uh, espionage in it, you know, the, the sex and violence seems to be what we now turn to for entertainment in our, on our culture. So, so there's like this new narrative written about her, uh, related to this. And so she's often cast as like a victimized woman who doesn't have much control of her own destiny, who, who, because of these powerful men come in and they want to end her life. And this perpetuates, different narratives that people are drawn to. Some of us are wounded, you know, and we we project onto other people that somehow, you know, they're being victimized or hurt. So this attracts certain folks um, and, you know, people wanting to uh, uh, blame people in power for using other people, um, whether or not there's really any evidence to support that or not. So there's political factors that interest people in this. Um, but, but, you know, I say Marilyn on the back cover, I say she's a simulacrum of these things. And that's, that's, that word really captures it because she's kind of been replaced with a new representation of her 
that's more about where we are as a culture. We project that onto her and her story. And of course, she's not here to defend herself and doesn't have family to do that. So we keep recasting her in this narrative about her death that seems to go on forever. And even though I wrote this book, I feel like it will continue to go on forever. Well, it's going to go on for another volume. <laughs> <laughs> when is when's the next volume? Of, I mean, this is volume one. And, yeah, there, uh, unfortunately, there were some delays with this book. You know, this book was actually, um, I started this, I, I had finished the two-volume biography in 2014 when both of those were published, Icon, the Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. And then I started doing um, a podcast, a Good Night Marilyn Radio with Nina Bosky mm -hmm. and Randall um, Libero. And so in, in doing that death investigation, um, I started working on the investigation from 2015. And the, the goal was for that to be uh, published on the 60th anniversary of Marilyn's death in 2022. And so I, I got it all done, but unfortunately there was a delay. The project manager uh, that I worked with, with the publisher, unfortunately died unexpectedly and that created a delay. And so, um, these books were supposed to be out last year. And so volume one just came off the press, like you said, in April. Volume um, two is all ready to go. Um, I'm just really waiting to hear from the publisher about, do you want me to send the button now or do we all need to have a little breather <laughs> after getting this one out? So, you know, I'm I'm guessing it'll be out um, possibly by Marilyn's um, birthday. June 1st is kind of realistic. Oh. Maybe in June. I'm thinking. Oh, that'd be great. I hope you can come back and talk oh, I, more I'd about it. I'd love to. It's 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 thicker. Volume oh, really? two is like the the meat and potatoes. I'd say it's almost like a volume one is a third of it, and volume two is two thirds of it. Wow. Well, I tell you, Gary Britaco Robles is the author, and the book is Icon: What Killed Marilyn Monroe, Volume One. It's published by Bear Manor Media. And you can get it on Amazon. You can go to barrenmanormedia.com and also order it from there. Gary, thank you for being on Light Camera Author tonight. Thank you, Jim. I'm honored. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>